Good morning, everyone. Let me read a passage uh, from Psalm 73, and then we will pray. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, this truly is our heart's desire, not always consistently, not always profoundly, not always deeply, and sometimes not always sincerely, but is what we want to want. It's what we desire to desire, and this too is part of the work that you are doing in our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that, again, as we investigate the scriptures to learn about ourselves and how you see us and how we ought to see ourselves, we ask that you would be the one in control this morning. We pray for the ministry of your spirit to prevail over the wisdom of man. We greatly desire these things, O Father, because only your spirit can bring about that fruit that truly speaks of the grace of God and that fruit uh, that truly accrues to the glory of Christ. Uh, we, we earnestly desire this, Father, this morning and ask that you would answer our prayers. We also pray, Father, that you would uh, deepen again our understanding of ourselves, that we would gain a clearer picture of what it means to repent and therefore what it means to cling to Christ. Help us in all these things, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we want to talk about the heart's desires, the heart's desires, what the Puritans called the affections. And in one sense, I think it's, it's fair to say that for them and uh, for ourselves, that this really does get to the very center of it. And in fact, if we're not dealing with this portion of our heart, then what are we doing? If a preacher is not aiming at this, what is he doing? If, if our sin is not impacting this part of, of who we are, what are we doing? And so that's part of what our emphasis, well, that's completely what our emphasis is going to be today. We're going to take the whole day to talk about this function of the heart and how it impacts our understanding of repentance and faith. So when we think about our heart, we're thinking about what the heart desires. And you see this language in scripture where God is commanding his people to seek him. And already that invokes that same idea, but he even says to, to seek me with all of your heart, seek me earnestly, like he does in Jeremiah 23. Or as our Savior says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And when we think of the heart's desires, it's, it's oftentimes in scripture that it uses the, the language of a craving for food to describe this. It's a nice graphic way of, of getting at this, to hunger or to thirst for God, Psalm 41.1, my soul thirsts for God. Psalm 63 uh, says the same thing. And our Savior invokes this very same vocabulary in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That these are the things that they are seeking. This is what their heart desires. But to simply call them our heart's desires is to understate what Scripture says because it talks about our heart's fervent desires, that these are not things that are timid or shy or lukewarm, they're not Laodicean. These are things that are, that are all in, like we read in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's not just what the heart seeks, but what the heart seeks ardently uh, with zeal. There's a, there's a deep earnestness uh, to this person. They're all in, we would say, in sports. 
And therefore, Scripture attaches to the desires emotions. Emotions are always associated with the heart, and it's getting at the same thing, that if my heart is set upon something and I get what I want, whether it's good or bad, my emotions come with it. I'm happy. I'm very content about that. But if I don't get what I want, then I pout or I get angry. And so we're not surprised to read in Scripture how the heart feels anger and joy. I should say, if you want the Scripture references for any of these, see me afterwards. The heart feels anger and joy and envy, rage, anxious fear, longing, sorrow, love, sickness, anguish, despair, excitement, contempt, zeal, and longing. And so it's trying to describe how it's, it's inwardly that we feel uh, these things, that our desires are, are attached to our emotions. In fact, the word heart is part of this wider vocabulary that we have in Scripture uh, that targets what we call the lower visceral region uh, of who we are. It, it kind of aims at this whole area. So, in fact, in Scripture, you get the word kidneys many times. It's not brought out in our English translations, which is fine with me. Um, but a lot of times you have this phrase that in Scripture, literally, it's, it's your heart and your kidneys, but it'll be translated uh, your mind and your heart. Let me give you a few examples of this. In the American Standard Version, Jeremiah 17.10, I, Jehovah, search the mind and I try the heart. Literally, it's I search the heart and I try the kidneys. Or in Psalm 7.9, you test the minds and hearts of your people. No, that's not what it says. Literally, I test the hearts and, and kidneys. And you have the same thing happening uh, in the New Testament, where, where Paul has this, this word that's translated bowels, or entrails, or guts, we would, we would say. And the, the word is splachna, even in sounds gross, just to say it, you know. And what's interesting is you have these kind of curious occurrences in the Bible where we're really glad for, for translators and kind of feel how difficult it must be to be a translator. In Philemon 12, Paul's talking about Onesimus, and he says, I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very bowels. Now, the, the, the translators say heart there. We understand that. What they're saying is this, this man who I have great feelings for in Christ, I'm sending my very, my very bowels. But there's sometimes it's really curious, like in 2 Corinthians 6, 12, where Paul is exhorting the Corinthians that he's loved them, he's opened his heart to them, and so it's translated, you have restricted your heart, but literally it's you've restricted your bowels. Uh, and usually we think that's a good thing. And First uh, John three seventeen, if you see your brother and yet you close your bowels to him, um, you know, if I see you, I'm very happy for you to close your bowels. You know, I just <laughs> let's just be very very upfront about that. Okay, it's it's what we do. But you know, it's translated, you close your heart because that's what it's really trying to say. And some of us, we could take you to the very place where we got that one phone call of an unexpected death. And before we were even thinking about it, it, it we, we felt we were kicked in the gut. Um, the first time, you know, uh, your spouse said, I love you. Um, that moment of great sadness or something I experienced recently, a, a moment of moral repulsiveness. Um, and you feel it. You feel it in your gut. Uh, I met my wife, Carol, at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I can take you to the spot where I first spotted her, to my left. And there was a seat behind me during orientation. We were singing. And we later 
traded notes that during the whole orientation, we positioned ourselves to be standing next to each other, or the one in front of us, one in the back. So we, this both was going on. And uh, so we dated, and, and then there came a time when uh, I was framing a house uh, for a friend down in Nashville, Tennessee, and she came down and saw me. We had a great weekend together, and I put her on a plane. So I went back to the job site. I remember walking around, looking down there, because the, there, be, there was a hole there. I could feel like something's wrong. And that's when I realized, I think I want to marry this woman, right? It's that, now I got serious brownie points for that one, right? That story. That's, that's how you do it, guys. But, uh, but we all understand that. The scripture is saying you're not just processing thoughts. There's many things that you feel. You feel them profoundly. And scripture uses all these terms to describe it, but its favorite term is heart. The heart's not just where we think, it's, it's where we feel. And so ultimately, the heart is not just about desires, it's not just about fervent desires, it's ultimately about what the heart, heart loves. And so Jonathan Edwards, when he speaks of the affections, he says, these are the more vigorous and sensible exercises of our heart, which will not abide spiritual things as an indifferent spectator. They like or dislike, approve or reject. We could add hate or love. And this is what our Savior is getting at in Matthew 6.21 in this very pointed phrase. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why does he use that word treasure? This is exactly what he's getting at. Your treasure is, is that thing for you'd be willing to sell everything else in your life just to get hold of this. He says that in another parable, of course. You'd make great sacrifices for this. The sun rises and falls upon this thing, whatever it is, because your desires are all focused and channeled upon this one thing. What receives the very best of your energy, your highest thoughts? What do you think about when you wake up and when you go to sleep? This is probably your treasure. That's where your love is. And so that's what explains what desires are in Scripture. But now here's a curious turn of events. And it's not the thing that we would expect, at least not from the Bible, that desires can be good or bad. You and I understand that. But it's the context in which we find the word desire that decides whether that desire is good or bad. In other words, the word desire, as it occurs in Scripture, is almost always neutral. Like in Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the, tri, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Well, there is a, we understand that the context is, is negative. She's desiring the very thing God said she was not supposed to partake of, that Adam was not supposed to partake of. Exodus 20, 17, you've, you've uh, recited this in worship so many times. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servant or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But the word covet there literally is the word desire. Or in Joshua 7 with Achan, who, who brought a great entry upon Israel. He said, I saw the cloak and the silver and the bar of the gold, and then I coveted them and took them. But the word coveted there is desire. In Proverbs 6.25, it speaks about this adulterous woman. It says, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you. So those are occurrences or contexts where clearly the word desire there is something negative. Yet the very same word, though, appears in Psalm 19.10 and other places where it's speaking of the word of God in Psalm 19, and it says, it is more to be desired than gold, even fine gold. The same thing happens in the New Testament. You have these examples where uh, these words obviously refer to something negative. In Matthew 5, 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, it's the word desire, 
has already committed adultery in his heart. Romans 1.24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. It's actually the word desires. You see the same thing in 1 John 2.16, these places where it's negative. But then in Matthew 13.17, our Savior says to his disciples, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. It's the word desire. So it's positive. And here's a great example, Luke 22:15, where Christ is partaking of the Passover feast with his disciples. And he says, I have earnestly desired to eat of this Passover with you before I suffer. So if this is true, if the word desire is kind of a neutral term, and it can go this way or that way, depending upon the context, then we draw two conclusions. And these are, these are very important for us to appreciate and understand what desire means. It means that on the one hand, desire in itself is not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily bad. The issue is rather what's the object of it? What's the amount of the desire? Um, of sitting uh, with Bill this morning and we are talking about the, how both of us were raised in the Church of God. I was raised in the Arminian Wesleyan Church of God. He was raised with the Pew Jumpers. Is Bill in here this morning? There he is. We're not supposed to say pew jumpers. It's kind of a derogative term, but his church is more charismatic. But where our traditions were very much alike is that if something was really, really fun, then it definitely is bad. If you're enjoying yourself, it's probably sin. But the Bible is saying that's not true because the way, made, the way that God made us is to desire strongly. But it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Strong desire is not in itself necessarily bad. That's one conclusion, but then there's the other conclusion. Desire in itself is not necessarily legitimate. Now, see, that's very contrary to the world. What the world says, any unfulfilled desire, well, that's terrible. You're not being authentic. That's the message to the movie Titanic, which I've never seen. Never seen it. These are pure eyes that have never sinned. But that was, as a pastor, that, that, that was a really hard thing to deal with because all these young girls went to that movie and they got this message, it's our love against the world. We can overcome, you know, class expectations or we don't care what our parents think. You know, we can just love because that's being true to oneself. That's what the world says, is that if you feel it, it's okay because that's being authentic. And the Word of God says that's not true either. That desires can be healthy, but they can also be unhealthy. They can be honorable, or they can be shameful. They can be very mature. They can be childish. There's some desires that will benefit you and some desires that will destroy you. And so the Word of God tells us that there's some desires that have to be subdued, some that need to be encouraged, some desires that should be smothered, some that should be fanned into flame, some that should be harnessed, and some that should be set free. And this is really important. For us to overcome perhaps the, the tendency towards, towards legalism or towards license and antinomianism. And I'm not going to get into those words. For those of you who know what I'm talking about, that's, that's good. That desire is, is what God gave to us in our heart. And, it's, and it, it's an engine that burns hot. And it wants to strongly desire. And we should not be necessarily put off by that. But we should not trust it either. And so we need to think then about how do we consider uh, desires that have gone bad. How do we think of sin as it relates to desires? And here we want to talk about the iniquity of our heart's desire. This is uh, the Old Testament's avon is the Hebrew word. It's the Old Testament's favorite word to describe um, this, this type of sin, which means a perversion. It's, it's, it's love that's been perverted. And it has a, a couple uh, different connotations to it that we'll talk about. 
But basically, this word iniquity, when you see that in your Old Testament in particular, it means to, to twist or to pervert or to, to contort something. It's something that's become crooked. It's took, it took something that was good and it used it for bad. It had a good purpose, but now we're using it towards a bad purpose because we're, we're manipulating it, we're, we're twisting it and perverting it. And this is the way it is in the New Testament too when it talks about wrongdoing. For instance, perverting or twisting God's truth. Like in Romans 1.18, we talked about this yesterday. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're taking the truth of God and they're turning it on its head. They're turning it inside out. They're making it upside down. They're twisting it and, and contorting it. And so the way we would maybe think about this best is in two directions. And if we think of this perverting something that's good, it was a good desire, but we pervert it, is that there's some desires that are crooked and some that are corrupt. And this might be a nice graphic way to get our hands on this. So crooked desires is when this love or this desire has been perverted. And the way the scripture talks about this sometimes is, is it contrasts that which is straight versus that which is uh, uh, twisted or wrong. So for instance, think of a very uh, important passage of scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. Uh, acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make what? Make straight your paths. And what it's saying is that we tend to either uh, stray from the path or we're on a crooked road and he puts us on that, that straight one. And so we're not surprised to see the opposite. Like in Luke 3, 5, it says, the crooked shall become straight. We used to call somebody who broke the law a crook. And it comes from this same idea, somebody who's not straight. I don't know how many C.S. Lewis fans we have here, especially the Space Trilogy. A lot of people have never read the Space Trilogy. It's unbelievable to me. Like, it's his greatest work. Quit messing around with the Chronicles of Narnia. Get into the big leagues. Let's, no, you should... You should always read the Chronicles of Narnia as a child and then as a young adult and read them as an adult. Uh, those, are, those are fabulous books. I'm just kidding. But I'm not kidding about the space trilogy. And out of the silent planet, there is a place where Ransom, who is the hero, is trying to explain what sin is because he's in a world that's innocent. And he's describing about humanity and he says, we humans are all a bent race. We're bent. We're not, we're not straight. And he says, we are here to to bring evil. This is exactly the biblical picture. This is no longer a straight stick. It's bent now. And we, the Bible also says that sin is crooked because it deceives. And so 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says that it twists what is true. So a lot of times you and I say, well, somebody tells a story, we'll say, well, that's a stretch. That's a stretch. The stretching the truth. That's exactly what the Bible says. Exodus 23.6, do not pervert justice. Literally, the word is do not stretch justice. You're, you're trying to expand it and make it do what it was not meant to do. So sin is crooked because it's wicked, it's evil, it's wrong, it's committing defraud, it's opposed to what is right, it's taking something that was straight and making it crooked. But the second side to this, and this is a very intriguing idea, and it's very important in Scripture, and that is that uh, corrupt desires are when love has become polluted. So this is a second way of thinking about it. It's, it's taking something that was pure and making it impure, something that was clean and making it unclean. It's making something dirty. 
I've said many times, why do people come to church? It's because they feel dirty and they want to get clean. And this is what the Bible is talking about, that sin is corruption. It's pollution. The Lord talked about the sin of Israel making the land unclean, polluting the land. And this is what scripture says about ourselves. Our Lord in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, it says, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So it's talking about this very thing. They make us, make us unclean. That sin is corruption and means that we need cleansing. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so these are desires that are impure. And so the Bible talks about not obeying the the passions of the body. Uh, Romans 6.12 or Ephesians 2.3, we once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And Romans 7, 5 says the same. And then Galatians 5, 24, that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. That word passion is even stronger than desire. And so this is what, what sin is. There are three very important words in the Old Testament, the three most popular words in the Old Testament for sin, and this is just just one of those three. And it's so helpful that God gives us these insights to understand um, ourselves that we're very complex. And it reflects the complexity of our heart, uh, that not all of our sins are, are caught up in our thought life. A lot of our sins have to do with our desires because these desires are so strong. But we've not even said the strongest thing we can say yet, that if our, what about if our twisted desires continue to grow stronger? What if it becomes something so strong that it, it gets to the point where it's clearly about something that we love? And the Bible has a term for this, and it's called idolatry. Now remember what, what God warns Israel about all the time in the Old Testament about idols. And it was never just about the idols, it's what the idols represented. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, the language of idols almost falls off completely. You only have two occurrences of it in the New Testament. The word idolatry is there. But why is that the case? Because it's not just the idols, what the idol represented, and it represented a certain desire. And so what picks up in the New Testament is this language of desire. And it refers to idolatry, what I would call uber desires. Desires that are completely spinning out of control. Desires that have taken over your life to the point where this is now my God. That's what idols and idolatry is all about. It's a false desire because it represents a false love. It represents a false God. And this is why this language of the scriptures is so helpful. What do we hunger and thirst for? What, what is it that causes us to feel bitter sorrow when we don't get what we want? Or fierce anger or, or jealousy that we're tempted to hurt another person? Or sheer joy and excitement and bliss? What is it that we adore, which means worship? What gets the best of our energy? What would we live for and die for? Well, these are idols. If it's a sinful desire that's, that's grown to this extent, then it's, it's an idol. It means it's a, a desire that is uncontrolled. 
Some of you remember in the Lord of the Rings when, when Pippin looks into the Sing Stone. I forget the technical name for it. Is there any Lord of the Rings nerd here who can help us out that I just exposed? What's it called? Say it again. I'm not sure. Okay, whatever. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm just trying to prove I'm not a nerd. <laughs> no, I am, but anyway. Um, but Rippon looks into this, this thing, the sing stone, and Mary says, why, why did you look? Why do you always have to look? And, P- and Pippin says, I don't know. I can't help it. And Mary says, you never can. And, and that really captures well what we're talking about, this I can't, I can't help myself. I, I want it so badly. And we think of all the good things that God gave to us and, and how we twist them and manipulate them and abuse them. And then we begin to adore this thing that we've now created, this, this warped thing, and we, we throw ourselves after it. And think of, for instance, just the gift of food. And this is something I like to think about all the time. And just the aroma of food, the deliciousness of it, the savoring taste that God has given to us. And this is something he gave to us that was meant to sustain us. And yet it can eventually destroy us. This is a good gift from heaven. It's interesting that manna in the Old Testament, it's called the the, the food of the angels. It's the bread of heaven. It's a gift, and, and food is like that. And Christ says we're allowed to pray for it every day. Give us today this, this daily bread that sustains us. It's a gift of God, and yet we can twist this very simple pleasure into an idolatrous pleasure in all kinds of ways, either to self-indulgence or to self-harm. And then there's love, one of the most precious gifts God has given to us. Love is beautiful. It's life-giving, life-affirming. But then there, it's twisted form. It's true love that gives, but false love takes. Love shares. Lust ravages. True love waits. Lust impatiently grabs. Love values getting to know that other person for who they are. It's lust that values other person for what they give me, how they gratify me. These are two very different things. But it came from the same desire. And reminds us uh, what is true of our enemy, that the Satan can't create anything. He only can take what, what God has given to us and, and twist it and manipulate it and make it sound bad. This is what happened to Eve in the garden, that God lavished Adam and Eve with all these trees. We can imagine the, um, uh, the abundance of fruit trees. You live in California. You of all people can envision this and see this plethora of trees and how beautiful it looked. And he said, but there's just this one I don't want you to have. And Satan was able to uh, tempt Eve to the point where he was able to make God sound like a curmudgeon. Isn't this so selfish of God that he would not give you this tree? That is terrible. And she believed a lie. She could not see the goodness of God. She doubted his character. And so when the desires begin to make demands like what we're talking about, this is what we call a God that's completely out of control. And it encourages us to do the things that we would never do. I won't give examples of that, but perhaps even to to understand and appreciate that we live in a culture that encourages us to glory in our shame. Romans 1 talks about this, that it can get to this point. You can live in a culture where the things that are utterly shameful and despicable, the things that are lifted up and put into the bright lights and say, isn't this beautiful and glorious? 
uh, 12 housewives um, were meeting for several years, learning French together. And one time, one of the ladies decided to just kind of take a quick poll and asked, who has remained faithful to their husband? Only one woman in the group of the 12 raised her hand. And one of the wives went home and reported to her husband what had happened and the results and admitted, admitted to him that she was not the one who raised her hand. And he looked at her and she said, I didn't raise my hand because I felt ashamed. That's the culture we live in. A woman who should have felt proud to raise her hand and say, I've been faithful to my husband, but because of the culture in which we live, she felt shame for something that was good and beautiful because the people around her were lifting up something that was utterly shameful. This is, this is what our world does. It tries to mask something that is twisted and perverted and terrible and ugly and make it sound good. So our sinful desires, somebody has said, are those things that are out of bounds or out of balance. And that's very helpful. So when we think of the commandments of God, when it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife, why? Well, that's out of bounds. But there are some desires that are good desires, the desire to work. This is why God put me on this planet, to work. But if I'm working 80 hours a week and I never see my family and neglects them, well, that's gotten out of balance. It's a good thing to work. And so many loves and desires that we have are like that. It's not exactly like we're desiring something that's completely wrong, that Scripture says you can't do that. It's something that's good, but, but you see what we've done. We've twisted it and perverted it. We've become obsessed with it. And it gets to the point where desires cannot be denied. It doesn't matter what logic says. It doesn't matter what the mind says. It doesn't matter how strong your will is. Those things are out of the question. The, the, the mind of the heart will find a way to excuse our desires, no matter how selfish or how destructive they are. We know full well many times the, the evil and the danger of our forbidden attitudes and actions, and yet we carry on anyway. Some of you who are a little bit older remember how um, Woody Allen began dating the daughter of his girlfriend, Mia Farrow. And she was probably underage at the time, Soon Yi. She was a young, young teen. And believe it or not, it was uh, the New York Times uh, who asked, this, the reporter asked the question, how in the world can you defend this relationship? And here was his answer. The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and fall in love, and that's that. Who cares? I don't have to explain myself. It's what I wanted. And getting back to the garden, as we think about Eve in that difficult position, and that one restricted tree, and scripture says she saw that the tree was pleasing and to be desired, and desiring it, she took. You have these, these there's actually four words there, but three verbs. Well, these appear again. They appear in, in 1 Samuel 11. When David is up on the balcony and he's looking down and he sees Bathsheba, he too took the forbidden fruit. The woman was very pleasing, good in appearance, and so he desired and he took. The very same words, the same sequence is happening, and it, it sent reverberations throughout his family. It's interesting, you get to that point in the book of 1 Samuel. I know this as a preacher. It's all downhill. It's so depressing. 
That's exactly what happened in the garden. Why? It was because about, it was desire. It doesn't matter remembering the words. Both of them knew exactly what was right and what was wrong. But if we want it, our hand is already reaching out before we think. It's not about logic, it's about desire. And scripture says, desires are conceived right here. James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So if our desires are strong and eventually ex- are expressed in, in great emotions, because these are the things that we love, then our repentance should reflect that. Our repentance in some way needs to reflect that our desires are engaged as, as Christians, because all of our heart is invested in this, we want to make things right. We want to come clean. And so it means it has to involve our desires. I wish I had more humorous stories and more jokes in a, in a beautiful transition from this, but I don't. And the problem is, is all of us, we know these things. We feel them instinctively, that this is what's taking place in our hearts. And, and that perhaps is the best segue to the next session. Then what does it mean to repent? of our wayward desires. But we have some time for for questions. Does anybody have a have a question? So your well the um, inner bowels or the that Hebrew translation in the King James it says the reins R E I N S. Have you heard of the R-E-I-G-N-S? R-E-I-N-S, the reins. Like the, and, I, and there's some points in the King James where it says the bowels as well, but is the that kind of R-E-I-N-S. Yeah. Like reins like on a horse or reining in. It looks like that, yeah. But have you heard that or No, I have not. That? I have not. That's, do we have any King Jimmy people here that can, yeah. Joe? There you go. I was wondering if you uh, see any illegitimate desires that the church is especially uh, in danger of, and maybe even thinking about the different stages of life that we go through, where we're especially maybe perhaps drawn into different Um, desires that are either out of bounds or out of balance. Well, how much time do you have? Uh, It's, there's so many. I think maybe the most important thing I would say, if if I could just emphasize this point again, is just, just remind ourselves that desire itself is not wrong or bad. And a lot of times, like say a young person, when they're showing a, a very, very strong passion for something, this is not something that should frighten us. That's not something that should scare us or caution our child that we don't want to see you so invested. I happen to think that when we invest ourselves fully into something, even if it falls apart, that that's one of the best lessons of life, that the way that God made us is to truly commit ourselves to things. And that's getting into the will, I know. But to, to feel something passionately, um, I, th- I think this is good. And what happens is, is that uh, sometimes we miss the mark badly. And therefore, we think we have, we have sinned very badly. 
And I think this is kind of what Luther is getting at with Melanchthon. He said, uh, sin boldly. And he was not telling him to go out and sin. What he, what he was saying is you're not gonna, you can't help but sin in, in what you do in life, but so you need to commit yourself with some boldness and understand that, that sin is going to reflect that. So I, I think it would be the word I would want to say, but yeah, definitely, Scripture attaches particular um, types of sins um, to one's youth. So for instance, in Psalm 25, David asked God not to remember the sins of my youth. And sometimes what will be attached to that is the word transgression, which we get into tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Transgression has the idea of rebellion. And I think that's why he's choosing that word, that, that youthfulness many times is, is characterized by rebellion. And, and that's how we associate it. And so, yeah, that can be common there. Or it can be um, also associated with an overly passiveness, just the opposite side of rebellion. That, too, is, a, is an expression of the will. But, again, we're going to get into that tomorrow. So that would be something we attach to youth. Um, Proverbs talks about the old king who got to the place where he could no longer take advice. He felt like he understood everything, and he became arrogant, and uh, I'm sorry, that's Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes contrasts that with this young person who had nothing but grew up because of wisdom and did not commit that error of that, of that older king who in his arrogance assumed too much, had, had become too proud and thought he, he knew everything and nobody could to tell him what to do. This is exactly what happened to Solomon. So that's something that's attached to, to age. Um, there are many glorious things that are attached to age and where it would be wise for young people to listen to older people who have wisdom. And the young person begins to describe what they know is, is, is the most novel sin ever committed. And the older person, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, several times. <laughs> um, and, and they're surprised to hear of somebody who really does relate. So I think there's certain things like that. So in the church corporately, I don't know. I think, you know, the Reformed Church gets accused of of being too intellectual and being arrogant. I think there's something to that. I think we should listen to that. But I don't think it's overly true always. And I don't think it's fair to say that the Reformed body is not emphasizing certain things when perhaps maybe that's a generational thing. For instance, our tradition is very big on the Holy Spirit. Calvin's called the theologian of the Spirit. I tell our students that a charismatic should walk into any of our churches and say, these are my people, because they hear the Holy Spirit being invoked so often in prayer and other ways because it reflects our dependency upon him. But it's possible as a Reformed Church to get so uh, focused upon doctrine that we lose sight of life and things like that. That could be a generational thing too. Or, we, or what we call the cage stage Calvinist, somebody who's, who's newly, to, newly in, you know, introduced to the Reformed faith and is zealous to the point where they're just bonkers, you know. Um, there's, a, there's a portrait of John Gill uh, that was in the um, study of Charles Spurgeon. John Gill was a hyper-Calvinist, and, um, and I don't, that's not a nice thing. And, um, and, and Spurgeon says, if you looked at the portrait, you could just detect a, the, the, the very lip over here just turning up almost to a, a, like a snarl. And it says that at that very moment when the painter was, was making that stroke that, that um, John Gill spotted an Arminian walking into the room. <laughs> and uh, we don't want that reputation. But that can be a generational thing too. I think we could do this all day. I think this, this younger generation, uh, we should be very concerned 
uh, for them, and we need to have lots of compassion for young people, uh, the world that they're, they're in. And the inundation that they're getting technologically is just something we've not seen. Uh, the casualty rate is just very high. We, just, we need to have compassion. And we bash social media all the time with our young people, but this is how they communicate, and they feel like we're just basically criticizing their generation instead of talking to them and training them to be moderate. moderate and use moderation in these things. But they need our compassion, our love, that's for sure. I'm sorry, I could just ramble all day on anything. I mean, you could ask me any question I could ramble. <laughs> just ask my poor wife, who's become a great listener. Is there a question over here, Peter? Um, how do we uh, minister to someone? Let's say we have a friend who might say, I understand how the Bible speaks about uh, that it is sin to act on a desire that's uh, um, and that's a sinful thing but that they're they believe that you know their desires within they can't do anything about and that um, and maybe even suggest that you know they wouldn't have those desires unless God gave them those right. desires um, how can we help minister to, to friends like that well I I think it, I mean we'll talk about this next hour a little bit but I think the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is medicinal and answers that very strongly where our Lord is, is, is just going inward, inward, inward. And, and I think that's part of what he's saying, um, that your righteousness must surpass those of, that of the Pharisees. He's not talking about imputed righteousness. He's talking about how you live. And this is what John Murray argues in that Christ is taking the commandments and turning them inward and saying that, you know, when thou shalt not commit murder, he, he says, well, let's just let's pull back from murder a little bit and let's talk about uh, hatred and anger, that they're on the same trajectory. And where, does, where does murder begin? It begins in this hatred that's been incubating, festering in my heart. Um, and it, it probably started with anger. And not all anger is explosive and um, immediate. There's that type of anger that is ice cold, cool, and calculating and waits patiently for its moment to do the great harm. So that's why I said the other day, I think anger is, is one of the most complex emotions that we have in scripture and why the Bible is so concerned to get a handle on that. So I, that's where I would send a person would be the Sermon on the Mount and say, let's just pick out three or four of these passages where our Savior diagnoses you know, what the heart of this commandment is about. What's interesting is of all the, the moral instructions that he talks about in, this, in the Matthew 5, two of those are, are the Ten Commandments, or two of the Ten Commandments. And he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And so what he's saying is, so now here's the real interpretation of this passage. And what he's showing you, this is the prophet. I mean, who talks like that? You've heard it said, but I tell you. And he's not just going after tradition. He picks two of the Ten Commandments, and he exegetes them. He interprets them. And he kind of does a little biopsy of them. He said, this is what this is really all about. Only the final prophet can do that. And, and that's what he does. And so, no, Scripture is very clear. It's, it's our desires. That's the problem. That's that James 1 passage. James 1.27. Where was that? James 1.14. It's conceived in our own heart. Now, the other side to that, do I have time? Yeah, I have time. The other side to that, when a person says I was born this way, 
I think we have uh, a deficient answer when we want to say that nobody is born with twisted desire. And I'm thinking, you do not even begin to understand the brilliance of the Reformed faith. Brothers and sisters, it is a mercy of God. It is an amazing thing that you and I are not born more twisted than we are. Every single type of sin is incubating in my heart. I was born to run a hundred different directions away from God. It is there in our hearts. People are born depraved. Romans 1 is telling us that. We are so messed up by nature. The amazing miracle is that we're not more messed up than we are. And so when someone says, I'm born this way, there's a sense in which what they're saying is, I was born with all kinds of desires, and we understand that. Now, we don't want to shake our head and say, well, that excuses immoral desires. That's where we're right to say, no, no, wait, you can't say that. But we need to have some sympathy towards a person who's beginning to express themselves and say, I have felt this way a long time. We need to understand what they're saying by that. Without excusing sin, and that's important, it's really important, to have some sympathy for these fellow image bearers that have not seen the light, but they're waking up and they see that there's a problem. This is a good thing. But we need to have some compassion for the tremendous pain. Can you imagine that? And some of you experience this, where you are beginning to understand that everything you've been doing is not working, and you see no hope in, in front of you, but you feel that, that guilt and that, and that weightiness, and you're, you're feeling the nearness of, of God's creation, and you're beginning to sense that, that this is not what life is, what I'm, ex, what I'm doing right now, that it's got to be something more, and they don't have any answers yet. And then they get a, a Christian just breathing down their neck, condemning them, instead of pointing them to Christ, and with tears, putting their arm around them, with understanding of how difficult this is, because what they're bearing is unbearable. This is the worst place to be as a human being, to be fallen, and you know it, but there's no answer. Well, this is the most depressing session I've ever given at any conference. <laughs> this is, we need the gospel, don't we? All right, let's have an even more depressing question. Up front, Lydia. You kind of touched on it a little bit already, but, um, sorry, you kind of touched on this a little bit already, but when someone has a desire that's not necessarily bad, but it's, it might be like wanting a family or wanting to be a missionary, but that's not your call, something like that but it's just on your heart continually how would you help someone who just keeps coming and saying I just I have this thing and it's I want this and it's not bad but I'm making it into an idol by wanting it continually and putting that above God even though God's clearly telling me not right now or not ever how would you help someone in that situation well I, two things come to mind one would be multitude of counselors. I would encourage a friend to ask around more broadly, more widely, people that, that know this person and can really give some honest assessment of, of their gifts and, and, and maybe have the same conclusion that you have. I mean, the Bible's always orienting us in this direction, and not just church government, but to, to, to cast out when we, when we need help with decision-making. There, there's wisdom there. I'm just so grateful for the fact that there's many times when I've been making an important decision or Carol or I as a pastor, you know, pitch the idea to others 
And, and many of them said, well, I think there's a good intention there, but no, I don't think this is a way to do it. When it comes to missions, there's a lot of times what God is doing, he's laying a, a tremendous burden upon their heart, and immediately their assumption is I'm to be a missionary. When, in fact, we need cheerleaders, and I, and I, and I mean that in a, in a positive sense. We need people who feel that burden, but have, say, administrative gifts and are able to, to muster support, uh, are able to, to get together prayer warriors to propel others, or somebody who feels this burden um, but is not really truly equipped to go on the mission field for one reason or another. I've, I knew a family that that was their heart's desire. It was one of my college roommates. I was in his wedding, dear, dear friends. Um, his wife had severe lupus, and it just became almost impossible for them, at that time anyway, we, we understand lupus better these days, to go on the mission field. It just seemed prohibitive for those reasons. There could be lots of reasons why a person probably shouldn't go, and among them, the best reasons would be a lack of gifts, um, but, but there might be something there. So in other words, we don't want to make it binary, either missionary or just forget it, go do something else. When in fact, what's, what has caused missions to be successful, in here, I would, I would read one of the, the giants from yesteryear and the, the obstacles they overcame just to, to get to missions and the team of people who sent them through prayer and support and organization and those that revitalized missions in the, in the 18th century because of this, because of people who didn't go, but people who felt that, that burden, that urgency, and we need to get the gospel to the, to the nations and do a better job of that. That's in our own family history, the Reformed Church. Some really wonderful stories that way. So that's how I would encourage them to think, maybe what we need to do is to fine-tune this sense of call. Maybe God's not sending you, but he's put this burden on your heart because you're to supply a different role. Where would Paul be without the Philippian church? Everybody else abandoned him. It's one church. We need, we need churches in Philippi. I mean, actually, literally, we probably do, but I mean, <laughs> we need Philippian-type churches in Southern California and Arizona. All right, I think we're, oh, we got time for. I, I just what you said about missions also applies to families. You're a single person and you want, you want to be married and you don't know the right person. You don't think God's ever going to send them. But that doesn't mean that you can't be part of other people's families. Help people who need help. You know, those moms and dads that have three or four kids crawling around their feet. You know, uh, mm. they're, they're, there's ways to be part of, part of your church family to, while you wait for God to send someone or not. Yeah, absolutely. I want to emphasize what she just said. After my, my late wife died, I found that I was definitely out of place in certain, place, certain situations. I talked to other widowers who said the same thing. They did not feel comfortable in certain situations. Hmm. One place where that was, there were two places where that was not true. And one of them was in the church. My congregation was wonderful to me and supporting me, even though they had not known most of them had not met my, my late wife. The other thing was Providence Christian College took me in and they actually asked me to do things and so on. But uh, that, if you are in a situation where you're single for a reason as I was, you may get pretty sensitive to what's going on. And the church should not be ever one where you put it out. 
And one of my former students had a wife who died recently. He said, I no longer feel comfortable in that church. It's all set up for couples. Hmm. We have four minutes. Bible says we have to redeem the time, so. Oh, one over here. Um, so, talking about passions that, that aren't getting filled and them perhaps turning into sin is I have someone in my life who has severe mental difficulties and she has been praying for relief. Um, for many, many, many years. And we see her growth and her success and her daily victories in this battle. Um, she does not see that and she often loses hope. So I was wondering recently whether to talk to her and say, what if you change your hope from cure, from this severe mental mm. debilitation to acceptance and daily victories or you know rather than aiming here and praying for God for that when he doesn't deliver to aim here is that wise is can you speak to that um, unfulfilled desires like adding on to to the other question yeah but uh, let me just say this so this is not about faith it's about sanctification just so people don't, don't misunderstand um, Yes, I think this is, this is very true. And in fact, um, Scripture speaks to this, and then our confession articulates it, that, that none of us will be free of sin before we die. None of us will be perfect in any one area of our life. And we may have several victories, but we will never truly gain the victory until we die. We're more than conquerors in Christ in the ultimate sense upon death and our glorification. And, it's, and that's important for us to hear and that, that God gives many of us substantial uh, victory and, and ability to overcome sin to the point where we, we're able to see in demonstrative ways um, greater and greater obedience and the subduing of sin to the point where it's, it's not the struggle that it once was. That God does not give all of us that. And it does not, he does not necessarily give it to us in the one area where we crave it most. And, and this is a hardship. I mean, this is a very difficult cross to bear. And I, it's so important that, that Christ tells us to take up the cross daily. And we'll talk about that in repentance today. Um, because for some people, that's, that's exactly what it is. Every day is a cross for this very, very thing. And, and this is where, if I, could, if I could say this about my tradition in the past um, and some parts of the Health and Wealth Gospel Church, where people would be brought forward and people would lay hands on them that if they had faith, they would be healed. And that teaching has done so much destruction where mothers came away from the altar thinking it was their problem. They did not have enough faith for their child. I, I can't imagine what kind of loving Christian would lay that burden upon a brother and sister when in fact the more compassionate thing is to say, his grace is sufficient for you to fight this battle. And it does not mean he's going to enable you to completely overcome it or he's gonna wipe it away in this life. But I'll walk with you through that fire. I will walk with you through that desert, no matter how long it takes. And it may be to their last breath. And in fact, that's, that's the way it is for many Christians. Now, that's not what everybody wants to hear. 
But there's a lot of hard sayings. The disciples said, we don't want to hear that. And most of them walked away. But what does it mean to follow Christ? It means to die, your, die to yourself. I remember what a student once said to me, this is in, in Philadelphia, and they say this answer, and they said, what do you think I need to do? And I said, I think you need to die some more. They said, what? I said, well, it's in the Bible, you know. <laughs> you have to die to yourself. And, and that's what God does, and it's in these saints in particular that we see just incredible things. And these are the people that I think teach us most about what is what does obedience look like? It looks like this in this sister of Christ who keeps persevering and feels so defeated, doesn't feel a lot of affirmation or peace in her heart, but she just keeps on fighting. That's a disciple of Christ. That's one who can teach us. Not these ones who write a book and sell millions of copies. I overcame. Okay, well, good for you. I'm still fighting. And that's where most of us really are. And that's where the Reformed faith is so helpful. Taking your sin seriously, staring it in the face and saying, okay, I'm going to look at this ugly monster every day. But my Savior is right beside me. He's in me by his spirit. I'm not alone. Okay, now we're getting too weepy. Go get a snack. <laughs>